Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hey, Eric. Today, we're speaking with poets Morgan Parker, author of the recently released collection Magical Negro, and Tommy Pico, whose most recent collection is Junk. So, Eric, this was your concept to have both Tommy and Morgan on together. You had a real idea here, but we didn't, I don't think we ended up talking about it. Yeah, yeah. we never, we got carried away in kind of craft talk and talking about their poems, which I really enjoyed. But the reason I had thought about having them together is that Tommy and Morgan are both poets that came from Brooklyn, like this very particular kind of poet circle in Brooklyn, and have separately over the past two years kind of moved out to Los Angeles. And so in some ways, it was this kind of like Brooklyn poets coming to Los Angeles, and I wanted to see what that was like, but we never got around to doing it. We might have touched on it very briefly, yeah, but I think there, right wasn't, the end, yeah. there wasn't any grand theory. Uh, no, no, no. Not, we, certainly not some like no. transnational movement that I could have like pulled together. <laughs> but. Yeah, but it's great to have more poets in L.A. because totally. L.A. always needs more poets, so... Exactly. Yeah. One of the other reasons that I wanted to bring the two of them in together is they think that both of them do this thing, which we talk about in the interview, that I really enjoy about their poetry, which is finding kind of everyday experiences and really like making magic out of them, Mm. like helping us to see like the more profound meaning that happens in everyday interactions, Mm. which I really enjoyed. And they did talk about that. Great. Well, let's get to that. Let's do it. We're thrilled to have poets Morgan Parker and Tommy Pico with us in the studio today. Morgan is the author of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, and she is the recipient of numerous awards, including the NEA Literature Fellowship, the Pushcart Prize, and the Cave Canem Fellowship. She joins us today to talk about her latest collection, Magical Negro, which was published in February by Tin House Books. Tommy Pico is the author of several collections of poetry, including most recently Junk, the third installment of his Teebs trilogy, or the Teeblogy, however you want to call it, <laughs> um, and, a, and, a recent win- <laughs> and a recent winner of the Whiting Award for Poetry. His next collection, Feed, will be published in November by Tin House Books. In addition to his poetry, Tommy is also a co-host of Food for Thought, that's T-H-O-T, and numeral for, a queer podcast about pop culture, relationships, literature, sex, race, and everything in between. Welcome to the show, Morgan and Tommy. Hi. Hi thanks for having us. I'm going to do this in two parts. So first, I want to ask, Morgan, can you read a selection so that our listeners can get a sense of your voice from Magical Negro? Absolutely, I can. Magical Negro, number 607. Gladys Knight on the 200th episode of The Jeffersons. Privilege is asking other people to look at you. I like everything in my apartment except me. I mean, I need to buy a toaster. What is the point of something that only does one thing? My life is a kind of reality. When I get bored, I close the window. By the way, what is a yuppie? Here I am, two landscapes. My tattoo artist says I'm a warrior with pain. I tell her we can manifest this new moon in six months. When I'm rich, I will still be black. You can't take the girl out of the ghetto until she earns it or grows up into it. It's too much to ask to be satisfied. 
Of course, I sing through the struggle. My problem is I'm too glamorous to be seen. How will I know when I've made it? In the mirror, will I have a face? How long does a good thing last? Sometimes eating a guilty salad, I become a wife. Let me be the woman who takes care of you. Wheezy and George in drapes and crystal silverware. By the way, predominantly white means white. I want to be the first black woman to live her life exclusively from the bathtub. Making toast, enjoying success despite my cultural and systemic setbacks. I was raised to be a nigger you can trust. I was raised to be better than my parents. In a small house with a swamp cooler, I touched myself. I wanted to be in the white mom's carpool, my cheek against something new and clean. I clean my apartment when I am afraid of being the only noise. Everyone I know is a black man, so I'm a black man too. Tragically, I win. It is a joke. I always require explanation. See, Life starring Martin Lawrence or Dope, wherein the hero must be proof of good intention. I am so lucky to be you. When something dies, I buy a new one. Thank you so much. Thank I really you. like that. And I'm sure that our listeners did as well. I wanted to ask you about this collection because I think the last time that we spoke, you were telling me that there are more beautiful things than Beyonce. It was actually kind of started out as a project where you had, I can't remember who the friend was or mm-hmm. what he had to write about, but it's like, I'll write a book about Beyonce. You write a book about this other thing. It was Lady Gaga. It was Lady Gaga. Okay. Just to date the whole project. <laughs> right. That was an equal trade-off. So, at we, the can, <laughs> so we can um, collate those two things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so can you tell me then, what was the inspiration for this? I mean, I can see a continuum of themes and also obviously your style is very similar across both collections. But can you tell us what you were trying to do and what the inception of this new book was? You know, I think, first of all, that they happen very side by side. A lot of these poems were originally in the manuscript for There Are More Beautiful Things, Ah, or at least, you know, some form of them. Because, as I always say, I'm going to be writing about the same themes forever. And so (laughs) it really, when I'm making a book, it's a question of how am I addressing these themes and in what tone and what are the poems that need to support the poems around it and build something larger. So I kind of, in the process of making those two separate books, Mm. I had all the poems kind of laid out and I had to think about what are the sub-themes that I'm also looking into. and. For their more beautiful things than Beyonce. I mean, a lot of them are similar, performance of bodies. And in my previous book, I was thinking a lot about the black woman and the kind of shininess of being on stage versus feeling very lonely on the inside and even just walking down the street. It also, the plays on pop culture and how we uphold black women and how we kind of like over glamorize, that was part of it, the kind of consumption of the body. In this book, it's a little bit more focused on death. (laughs) And that's a symptom of just when I was writing these poems and when I was making the book. I noticed the tone in some of the poems veering away from the project of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. So I kind of pulled those and thought about 
okay, what are the things that are kind of showing up in these poems that didn't show up in the others? And what's different about the way that I'm approaching them? And a lot of that was just through a much darker lens and a terser and less, not less playful, but less entertaining. Mm. Not to myself. I like, I must be entertained as I'm writing. That's really important to me. But the jokes are more for me and not for you. Um, (laughs) There's less of, yeah, I guess less appealing to and more appealing on behalf of. It's a lot about humanity and asking readers to look at not just the body, but what's inside of it. And furthermore, which is, I think, something that I was able to push harder on than in the last book. What are our responsibilities to one another's bodies? Right. And I think this book contains a lot more indictment and accusation to the reader rather than an explanation. So it's kind of like, I've explained it all to you, and yet, <laughs> you know, so what do we do from here? And it's a little bit more no-nonsense and more aggressive. And I wouldn't say less urgent, but I think... Actually, a friend of mine, Jason P. Smith, when I first had the beginnings of this collection, they said, oh, you're not interested in being charming anymore, Mm -hmm. which I mean, (laughs) I'm still charming. (laughs) Let's take that. But, you know, yeah, I do think there's a little bit of I don't have anything left. Like, I don't have any more kind of like tricks left to talk about these things. And also, I could die at any minute. I said that before, but I really Mm. mean it. Let's not glide past that idea. And do you think that you're also more comfortable now with your voice, with your style, that you've, after writing a few collections, that you have a confidence you might not have had before, and that just allows you to let it rip in a different way? Yeah, to some extent, absolutely. I think it's also a matter of me giving myself permission It's not as if that voice hasn't been underneath the poems, but I think there is a feeling of not being allowed or not wanting to push that hard. And yeah, I guess having written the other books and said what I need to say in those other styles, this felt like the right opportunity to think on a more global and historical and just a larger level. I think my first two books were really focused on the self, or at least my first book is really focused on that. The second being the self and also the community. And this one really taps into a more kind of ancestral and historical and societal kind of experience of the self, which there are all these kind of different layers. I've been saying I'm not sure what will happen in my next book if I'll just go back to the beginning of that kind (laughs) of cycle of self to world to the infinite, I suppose. I think there has to be a working out of each of those levels. Can you tell us about the figure that is also the title? So the magical Negro, which I read. I mean, there's obviously the reference to that racist CD that the GOP passed around what? during Obama. I don't even like, know anything about this. What is that? <laughs> Obama. I think the, I need not even know what's about this, it. No, it was this like awful. Am I wrong here? It was like some awful Christmas CD that oh, one of no. the congressmen or senators was shopping around. Um, wow, that's... But Awful. And well, unfortunately believable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I know they threw it was like, like bananas at the White House. Like just oh god awful. I know. Just 
Let me double check this right now. But can you talk about that figure? Like, sure. what, Because it's also a figure that appears in these, at least in the titles of poems that are referencing Black celebrities and mm-hmm. kind of cultural touchstones. Mm-hmm. Well, culturally, we think of this figure of the magical Negro as this kind of stock character from film or literature. We can point to them, the kind of character that just pops in just at the right moment to like lead the white character on their path and then somehow disappears. This kind of flat character who exists only to serve a purpose and really to put magic into someone else's life. And that's like their, it is a kind of magic trick, like a genie or something. (laughs) And I think we're, as a culture, kind of familiar with that idea, but not necessarily the impact of those characters. And I really wanted to look at media a lot in Mm. this book. And that's, again, slightly skewered from looking at the kind of pop cultural figures into just in general, what are our cultural understandings? What are the things that we see over and over that stick in our heads and change the way that we live and interact and the way that we understand other folks. Mm. So really thinking about, I was very compelled by these several police officers saying that they were afraid of like a kid. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized I almost couldn't blame them. If these are folks who have never met a real black person Mm. and all they're experiencing on television or in the media, I mean, they have a very flat understanding of the humanity of that person. And the more we see figures like that, the more we can erase the humanity of people who are even right in front of them. Do you think any of that has, I mean, that's a long strain in American life and in media representation of black people. Do you think, though, that there are, I guess, arguably like current celebrities that exercise a degree of control and autonomy, such as Beyonce, for example. Mm -hmm. Janelle Monae would be another one. Mm -hmm. That Do you think that that speaks back to that kind of like to give us new representations of blackness that can do something positive? Or do you think that it's the changing same? Well, I think a little bit of both. I think Mm. for me, I'm encouraged by those figures taking control. But I also think there is, I mean, there's two signs of every coin. I think the danger behind these things is that they become an exception. You're not black, you're OJ. You're not black, you're Morgan. You're not black, you're Beyonce. Thinking about these figures in a different light. And that often is the magical Negro. You know, you're my buddy. But these other black people over here, I don't know anything about them. And I also think that... Well, that's also extricating blackness from that person that is your friend. Certainly. And... You know, I'm thinking about it in terms of how white people view black people, but also how we do. And I think I just wanted a space to talk about how much damage that does, not to us in terms of endangering us, but in terms of psychologically really doing some heavy damage that I'm still paying hundreds of dollars per week for. (laughs) What does it mean for us to only see ourselves represented in these ways? What does it mean for me to turn on the TV and constantly see a video of my death. I was thinking a lot about that and then alongside thinking about these characters and 
what role they play in terms of the American consciousness. Okay, and just brief editorial note before we run over there. So that Obama the Magic Negro is the title of an editorial that critic David Ehrenstein wrote for the LA Times. Yes. And then it was picked up as a Barack the Magic Negro set to the tune of Puff <gasps> the Magic Dragon by at first Rush Limbaugh and then Chip Saltzman, a Republican politician and chair of the Tennessee Republican Party, who created a 41-track CD <gasps> that contained these oh songs God. and sent it to members That's of the Republican so Party. First of all, <laughs> I knew tax I had not dollars at yeah, work. Yes. Who has the exactly. time to make a 41, I mean, basically, this album? Who has time to do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What in the world? What a great use of a human being. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. And, and to your say, point, taxpayer dollars. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, what is happening? And who has the gall to do something like that? And the answer is only someone who doesn't view another person as another person. That is really just – and I should say also that the article in The Times is quite good and interesting and, you know, really touching on some more nuanced points. But, of course, the only way it's taken is as Up on the other side, yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. Tommy, I'm wondering the kind of themes – Morgan's talking about how those play out in your work. Well, first of all, we had talked about, this is like a while ago when I think I had read an earlier version of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, and Morgan was kind of like, dang, I think I'm actually just working on another book. And she had started to come up with this title, Magical Negro, and I was like, okay, now my next book is going to be called Noble Savage, and they're going to come out (laughs) at the same time next to each other, and we're going to go on this tour. We had a whole plan. We were like, let's just... Have Tin House package it up. Yeah. <laughs> Just send us out so, on the road. Like album, the difference yeah, between no. selling a hundred of these and a hundred thousand of these is the hundred dollars you give us to go on and do all these colleges or whatever. So like I had wanted to do that, but then this other book feed started to come out, and I realized that probably Noble Savage, it's not going to be a poem. It's probably mm. going to be the essays. Mm. So that is just like in the future waiting for me. But yeah, I mean, what Morgan is talking about, about like these racist depictions taking out or preventing the humanity of an individual is something that I am always thinking about and tackling in different ways. I mean, you know, like the nature poem, my Mm -hmm. second book was all about like, Mm -hmm. I can't write a nature poem because I'm native and people are going to expect me to write a nature poem. So I'm going to write everything else. You won't catch me writing about a feather. I'm not writing about leather or beads or moccasins or nothing. There will be no trees in my poems. I would slap a tree across the face is actually the line from the book. Because it's all fodder for the noble savage narrative. I'm Mm -hmm. supposed to have this prescribed relationship with and reverence for and fealty to nature. I'm not going to give you that. And then I ended up writing a nature poem, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. in response to that. But it, I feel like in different ways, the books have had different emotional registers where like IRL was more flirty and nature poem was more angry and mm-hmm. junk was more resigned and feed is, mm-hmm. I've kind of come around to this idea, you know, like it's about the springtime and all these like plants budding and I'm writing with abandon about these things that I would never have been able to write about in the second mm. book. Because you think you've moved through them to get to that place where it's like, again, you're kind of freed up to write about whatever the yeah. F you want to write about. Tommy, yeah, would yeah. you mind reading us so that our listeners can hear a selection from Junk? For sure. Yeah. So this is from Junk. You know, just to be clear, this is a book length poem. So it's like I'm reading an excerpt <laughs> from it. And this is particularly difficult because it's all in couplets. But here we go. 
The days are burnt packets of fake sugar in Freakland, and Sundays are the blurry worst. I'm taking notes in therapy like, be more in the moment. Everyone, they say, is trying to quiet the buzz. But here, in the white waves, in the ring of your absence, I chafe to chatter. I'd leap into a scream of swans rubbing their swan cocks against the water's ass. Starving junk in the sticky soda of my boy me. Spit on that rock hard narrative. Make it glisten. Fuck. Oh, fuck. My head of rabid Sega frantic 16-bit divination. My hands huge Venn diagrams. The middle is where I miss you, filling me. Honey, in the raw, it's odd to feel someone slip away, drilling their junk inside you. The sky is still and shy and surfing. Newsflash, predictions are insecure. But here are the rainbow road's possible paths. Come, Delta, choke my loneliness, Daddy. More graphics, more resolution, more jagged chin cliffs, more anarchist sex dolls, more jewel teeth, more tears on the pizza, more hungry boy somewhere in the noise machine. The fat junk wags against my throat. Junk is charming in the hollows. A dude leans into me like cigarettes, half asleep. You know how some people are workaholics? Well, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Today's jaw lick, click, clock, sops the syrup leaking from my moors. I mean, pores, one more time, please. Can I please ride just one more time? I have the tightest, pinkest purse. Sorry, clutch. Let's play a game called sociopath or gay man. Let's bottomless brunch. Let's, let's, let's pedal bagel with strawberry tofu cream cheese, toasted snickerdoodle smoothie, fuchsia puree, adrenaline whole bellinis. I'll eat it, daddy. Baby. I'm the opposite of a foodie. I'm like a junkie. Thank you. Thank you. I, I love that selection. I, there's so many moments that I really love in Junk. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Morgan Parker and Tommy Pico. I wanted to ask you about the collection as a whole because you've described it as the breakup poem of the trilogy that mm-hmm. if i'm remembering mm-hmm. right nature is the relationship relationship yeah and IRL is the flirty like new love the crushy situation one. Mm-hmm. so can you talk about what it feels like to end i love i don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't read it yet but what it was cuz i love the way that you end this collection actually and it made me rethink about the previous two volumes as well what was it like to finish the cycle and well, like, where do you go after? Junk? See, I thought I was done, but I'm oh, not so done. Oh, so Feed is not. It's actually okay. now a tetralogy. Feed is the fourth okay. book in the Teebs tetralogy, whereas this was the third book in the Teebs trilogy. Okay. I kind of had to open it up a little bit. So we have to redo the back cover copy at some point. But it felt 
final for the poem. It always feels that way. Anytime Uh. I end, I mean, my marker or whatever, my legacy is like a book length poem, right? That's things that I like to read. Those are the things that I ended up writing. And every time I finish, I think it's done. Literally, like IRL ended with the mic drop. And I was like, well, I'm done writing poems. That's all. (laughs) And then nature poem ended with people on Instagram looking at pictures of the sunset. You know, and that seems like an uh, apt ending for me. Yeah. I'm all done with poems now. And then I ended junk the way that I did. And it seemed final. I'm all done. Except I knew. It does feel very final for a particular reason. Yes. But I knew. I felt it inside of me when I was done with this one. I I knew in the first two books I had tricked myself into thinking I was done with poems. And this one I was like, I think there's something left. Mm. You know, because there is like the like feed is the fourth book. It's the reconciliation book. It's the one that takes place in spring. It's also the one where uh, it's like the, the the Teeb's character learns how to be friends with an ex. Ah, so this okay. Is like oh, the, I can, this okay. is the breakup. And then it's like years later, you know. But I'm also, as I, as I wrote the fourth book, I was also working in screenwriting. And, and, and so something more narrative and, and more fictive, I ended up, feed is, it feels more like a story. It feels mm. more like it has a plot, actually, and it has dialogue and it has characters. And when my okay. editor, Tony at Tin House, both of our editors, read it, he was like, I can see the influence of screenwriting on this book in particular. Mm. What's the movie you've been writing? It's a thing that I can't really talk about. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so but Hollywood. it's going to be good. Yeah, okay. I know it's going to be good. I'm finishing. I have to send in the, the final draft to my producer today. And then we're going to start sending it out to people to read it, to take a look at it, to, gotcha. you know, because I, I, I did all my notes. I wrote the story and, and it's gotten to the point where I I've fixed everything that I can see. So we need to get some other eyes on it. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. I wanted to ask you guys both a question about writing in the first person and your, your eye. Do you consider that eye a representation of, of you? Is that like a direct line to you or how do you craft that I because in your poems? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, or tell us about working with, working with, with that. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is a big question for any poet. Cause that's, Would you like to go first? But, <laughs> you know, I struggle with this because I, I say two things. I say that this all these poems are about me, but I think it's a, it's a very false statement to say that the poems are in my voice or that they represent me. That's just a kind of irresponsible thing to think about any first person poem. A lot of, you know, I'm I, people that know me know little things that are in here that refer to me, but there are also things that refer to friends of mine and characters on TV or whatever. I think that I want the poems to feel real and of a real soul, but I think it's several versions of me. And when I say several versions, I mean past, present, future. I mean hidden versions. I mean all the voices in my head, no matter where they came from, whether or not they originated inside me or, you know, I'm taking the language of all of these things to build something that isn't me, but feels closely aligned with the authentic experience of me walking through the world. Mm. And also, I feel like in my mind, it relates a little bit to the the tattoo you have that has like black several times with different punctuation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is like... It's from an art piece by the artist 
uh, Camila, Janine Rashid, and it's called Punctuated Blackness. So it's black several times. There's a period at the end of one, a colon, um, a question mark, exclamation point, and one with an ampersand at the end. Yeah, it's a it's a kaleidoscope of personhood, you know, yeah. and it is at least and specifically in this book, it's a collective voice. You know, I mentioned the choir and this kind of chorus of a, you know, Greek chorus. There are a lot of voices in all of my books and the I represents something other than an I, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I purposefully created a character named Tebes. So the I is Tebes. The I, I mean, that's sometimes me. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. he overlaps with my life, you know what I mean? But, like, he is, like, super loud and, like, super funny and, like, super horny and super hungry. And, you know, it's, like, everything dialed up to a 10. So or... what's the part that's different? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you can tease on this show right now. I don't know. Tommy left a couple of hours ago. <laughs> right. Um, but I did also, it also freed me up to, as Morgan said, like, have a kind of kaleidoscope of not just voices but experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, I could, I got, th- this is, it's a crap. You know, just because it's like casual or accessible, I think people kind of try to undermine the work that we really Mm -hmm. do. It's not like my diary, you know, it's (laughs) not, it doesn't, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like an email I would send to Tommy. And yet I want it for readers to feel close to that. Mm -hmm. So it's almost more gymnastics that you have to do to create something that seems like an eye that the reader can really connect to, there are so many like filters and revisions and mm-hmm. well um, this is this is a part of the process that I actually wanted to ask both of you about because there's a one thing that I really, really appreciate. Your poetry is very different, but I think that there's one thing that I appreciate in the work that both of you produce, which is and I don't have the right word for it, but it's like you you capture this kind of like a daily sublime or the dailiness of the sublime. So for example, like guac stains on some on your shorts or, you know, so greeting like the food delivery man in your, in your, in your without a bra, <laughs> sorry, braless. Um, that kind of, you capture moments, like you're saying, Morgan, that are very relatable, but you find a way to kind of elevate them, right? Mm-hmm. So that it's like you, you actually find, I think, the magic or the spirit like in the everyday. And I wonder what that is like, both as like a kind of revision process of like finding a moment that you know is rich and then figuring out how you're going to bring the reader into it or how you're going to articulate or enunciate it. Just can you talk about that part of your process? Okay, let's talk about the guac stain, for example. (laughs) It was like guac stains on white shorts, right? And I was trying to get to this anxiety of being poor, you know, and of like not being able to ever have white clothes because I could never keep them white. And so it was like, that was, you know, it was I had guac on my shorts and I was like, this is why I can't have nice things. Mm -hmm. right? You know what I mean? But it was illustrative of a larger point that I was trying to make at that part in the book, which is like, I don't know how to explain to you how what kind of a trauma growing up poor is but it's like I will never feel worthy of things like this Mm, mm. yeah and I think that we both think in a similar way which is coming to these conclusions that are often you know said to each other over drinks or Mm -hmm. you know I can't this is why I can't have nice things or you know it's America's fault that I hate myself, et cetera. <laughs> Just like these yeah. kind of casual observations that we're then able to think about on a different level of consciousness. And I would say that for both of us, part of the craft is collapsing those two things and making the reader kind of helping the reader 
come to those connections. We're looking at things with separate pairs of eyes, which is, on one hand, this thing is happening to me. On the other hand, what does this say about, yeah. you know, all of this other stuff? And like that's that slipping between the micro and the macro absolutely. all the time. Yeah. And, and also being like, you know, like dailiness and, 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 and the accessible or whatever, like they have been used to keep people like us mm-hmm. from publishing and from making things and, f- and, and for thinking that we are somehow subpar because we don't have – you know, ten thousand dollar vocabularies, or we didn't go to Harvard, or whatever. It's I mean, like I that's Ivory Columbia, Tower. So. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, this Harvard people. Well, Columbia. I mean, but I mean, just <laughs> right. But I mean, like, but the, the, this Ivory Tower top down yeah. kind yeah. of poetics sure. that yeah. like is dominated by people who think that if you say something in the most complicated way, it's somehow more sublime. And it's like actually, I think finding a way to be yes. smart and casual is a lot harder, yeah. and that's what they can't do. Yes, mm-hmm. and also just you know being of an oppressed people feeling as though documenting our dailiness is not allowed or something that society you know wants i think so often we like have to make our experiences these kind of like dramatic takeaways for white readers but i think what's fun for us is just to be able to showcase like this is what my life looks like Yes, there are all these other layers to it, but I don't know. I've like I've read and seen and watched so much of the nuances of a white life mm-hmm. and without question, you know, no right. one is questioning right. walking in the woods on a snowy evening. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> like but if we wrote that they'd be like, "But what what's the message?" You know? Right. And I I think there is something rebellious and sort of punk about just like writing through the lens of these everyday experiences and not playing them down, not flattening them, but showing the kind of like you said the the sublime and dimensionality. The, the d- yeah. yeah, the dimensionality of of these moments and um what can be gleaned in the simplest moments of our lives. And it also, I, honestly, like, I I don't know if I would be able to produce, uh, if I would be able to write if I sat and thought I have to write a poem. Mm-hmm. You know? Ah, so it's okay. like, it's, it helps me, like, do, like that sort of documentation, not really, but it, it's more of a curation, right? Because I could write about anything I did sure. all day, but I wrote about that one thing. And it means yeah. something because right. I wrote about it. Right. That it encourages me to continue to write because I find the process of writing less intimidating when I'm allowed to bring in things like that. This could potentially like put us down a rabbit hole, but it's like, what is your process of writing? I know Morgan, for example, and this is what I wanted to ask you about before the show, but um, that you use typewriter. No, um, I oh, don't. Oh, you do not, but you have one. Is that I what have it is? a typewriter? That's just because ah, okay. it looks cute. Actually, a... you know, I have been thinking about getting the one I have is is old and it does look cute. And I, also, I've had it since I was a kid because <laughs> oh, I was like, I must have a typewriter because I was ten yeah! and myself. What ki- can you tell us what kind of typewriter? Oh it is? man, it's an Olympia. Oh, okay. Yeah, I had a Smith like Corona. A, okay, The cool. old baby blue ones. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I had sm- that one. And they smell like gear oil. Mm-hmm. It's like the best. And they're very loud. They wake yep. up everybody else. But oh, I love that smell. I remember like a specific moment. I wonder how old I was. Maybe I was like in middle school or something. And I remember I had gotten that typewriter and I was like in my bedroom, <laughs> door closed, you know, and... I told my mom, like, I'll take my dinner later. Like, <laughs> wow. So Hold Morgan. my calls. I know, yeah. So I, I have been thinking about getting an electric typewriter, though, be, just because 
the computer is has it's so a distraction many temptations. Yeah. And we were just talking about this. Like the emails keep coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's like, when do you when do y'all expect us to write? Because we're like filling out forms and contracts yeah. and like responding to you know, requests like, and things. So. My job is not to fill out W-9s. No. Is it my job no. to write? So, yeah. like, let me just do that thing. Yeah. But it is, I mean, it is true that, like, it, and because writing, I mean, that you can do anything but write. You really yeah. could. <laughs> it's really easy not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, you have to put yourself in a position of being able to, like, focus on it. Yeah. And how do you, do you, um, you know, particularly you, Tommy, because the, the poems are book length. Do you kind of capture a couple of couplets and then like arrange them? Or how does that process work? Well, with junk in particular, it didn't have a form for a very long time. Uh. I was writing and writing and accumulating material for the long poem, but I didn't, nothing, the form hadn't stuck yet. But it was like in the midst of a breakup. So like I was kind of thinking about that. And the initial um, commission that I got that kicked the book into gear was for an Australian magazine called Lifted Brow. And they had asked me to write a poem, a necrastic poem, in response to this artist that they had featured in the magazine. And, what was, and the commission was what I read earlier. So it was just that small little snippet. And it was I like see. the form was as if it was itself a picture. So it was just like a, a, a rectangular box. And then all of that, you know, swans and the cocks and all that kind of stuff, that was contained in the box. But it, but that's literally what was happening in the painting itself. Mm, mm, <laughs> and I had I called it Faggotland because it was just very gay. Um, <laughs> and there were rainbows everywhere. And it was just, but it was, it was saccharine. You know, it was sweet, but like tangy. So that's why I was like, it's like burnt mm. packets of fake sugar in Faggotland. And Sundays are the blurry worst because everyone in the painting was like hungover. So, um, <laughs> And then, like, what bloomed from that was I was also reading Garbage by A.R. Ammons at the same time. Oh, okay. And he, I, and I think one of the things that he argued in that book was that elders in our society are treated like garbage. Like, they've outlived their purpose and they're just discarded and thrown away. And I was thinking a lot about the space in you occupy after a breakup or after you lose a job or after you get kicked out of an apartment or something mm-hmm. where it's like you don't have anything mooring to hold on to. And I just called that space junk because it was it's not like a thing had outlived its purpose but it was just waiting for a new use right and so but his poem was all in couplets Mm -hmm. and I just had decided that I would see what that would look like but there is no punctuation in the book so I wanted to give it some kind of structure right something very particular and then also like it's called junk so I wanted to make it seem as if the book itself was a junk drawer so it's made up of Mm -hmm. all of these shiny sharp moments but then if you turn back you kind of lose it because all the couplets are there are ten couplets on a page and all of them are are about four and a half inches long. So I wanted to make it uh, such a uniform thing, which is like weirdly like, you know, how thrift stores all smell the same, even mm-hmm. though they're made up of so many mm, different things, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I wanted there to be a uniformity and a distinction in it. Okay. I was going to say, I remember when you started this and you were like, I don't really know, but I've been reading garbage and I have this idea of my version of that being junk. Mm-hmm. And I think that even as you were kind of wanting to fill it and make it messy and formless, there was in the back of your mind, you know, the Ammons poem, which I think was interesting to watch. You have that specifically as a kind of jumping off point. Yeah, I think there was, like, subconsciously it was, like, a thing that was pushing me towards I mean, you must experience this a lot, like, especially, like, in this latest collection as you kind of name it and you're, you're, like, accumulating writing for it. And it's kind of like it, 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 what you make kind of circles back to that obsession, Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. lens, right? And allows you to create a coherent work. Sure. And even when you don't 
I think what what we're both doing is is not feeling beholden to that. But I, I do think you know because we're kind of we're very saggy, mm-hmm. so <laughs> it can help to have this like underlying subconscious kind of form and path mm. to contain all of the kind of varying messes that we want in the books. Yeah, and it's a, a kind of a statement of worth, too. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this deserves to be here because I had this yes. idea or this obsession or this lens, and I just have to have faith mm-hmm. that it's going to work out somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you guys are both now writing novels. Is that right? Mine's done. She, hers is oh, done. yours is done. I just started. Okay, you just started. And she's like, why did you do this to yourself? <laughs> Can we talk about the, is this like a trend? You. I feel like I've seen, because like Ocean Wong has his like novel coming out. I've noticed a lot of poets like starting to work on novels. I don't know about trendiness. I can't tell you <laughs> uh, the one thing about that. My uh, Is it weird working in the novel form? I mean, Tommy, you were saying that you've been working on screenplays, which should help that give was you a that lot kind of weirder. Like, narrative. Yeah, that's way weirder. That was weird. It's way yeah. weirder because the because you know I've said this to Morgan before as a, like I've been you know in the throes of making this thing and, and throwing myself against the wall that the for us like the art is the book, it's the poem. You know, uh, for screenwriting, that's the document that leads you to the art. To the art, yeah. You know, yeah. and so it's different. And I like working on this. I mean, I again like I have to turn in the screenplay today, and then I can start working on the, the novel. <laughs> but especially with the way that the last book ends with Feed, the, the final poetry collection ends, I was more pulled towards narrative and character and voice okay. and stuff like that. And so I wanted to work on, and I'm working on some other screenplays too, but it's like uh, there, I, I want to have a thing that has all of those narrative components, but that allows me to write it. You know what I mean? That allow- I'm still the boss. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I'm, I'm where the buck stops. I don't care about a director. I don't care about a producer. I don't care about an actor. I don't care about a grip. I want to make this thing, mm-hmm. yeah. which is like why what I'm a control freak and it's what I come back to, and so, <laughs> and I'm not particularly interested in writing a poem anymore. That might come again later. Huh. I feel like right. I got it out of me but for now, yeah. And I, I'm just, I, and also I, I find a kind of charge in working in new medium mm-hmm. of ri- media of writing, mediums of writing. You know, I, because I, then I, I feel more like a novice, and I'm learning things, and I'm mm-hmm. excited by them, and I'm not jaded by them yet. I'm sure after I finish a novel in two or three, four, five, ten years, I'm gonna be <laughs> like, freak that. <laughs> well, you know how I said to my agent, I was like. Remind me never to write a novel again mm. as soon as I turn mine in. But also, I have another idea. For <laughs> you know, it kind well, it's of... new constraints and new possibilities, yeah, right? Like every form offers its own, like, you know, it's its own fishbowl that you mm-hmm. get to, like, play in for a little while. So I'm sure that's, like, exciting. And then also you're like, damn, there's, like, a way that this would work out in so a poem I'm... that I can't do here. Can you tell us about your novel, Morgan? Yeah, it's coming out in September. Yeah. I hope oh, you yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think it's actually going to go up for pre-order, like... Maybe next week. Oh no! Yeah. Um, okay. And and gal, or at least a kind of, it'll have like its Amazon page or whatever. Yeah, it's all it's all happening. Um, <laughs> it's a young adult novel, and it's you know loosely based on my experience growing up uh, here in Southern California and being a weirdo and <laughs> having depression. Yeah, it's it's not. I I never thought that I would do that, specifically write a young adult novel, but I had been working in, you know, just prose writing and essay mm. form, some some different moments of that period of my life. And yeah, over the years it became this, and with the help of, of many, you know, agents and editors, it made its way and found its way. And 
as I was working on it and becoming increasingly frustrated, the more I realized that I had to finish it, that it would be really impactful, not only for like the past version of me, but any other teen that feels that way and Mm. any other, you know, adults that did feel that way. Mm. I think it's very, you know, it's pretty crossover and accessible to kind of adults and teens. And I think, you know, I just think a lot about being of that age, being diagnosed with depression and not really having any models for that Mm -hmm. and that making it even worse because I felt that something was wrong with me and that I was trespassing in some way, which I already felt like such a weirdo. You know, I was in a very white high school that was conservative and Christian and everyone's wearing rainbow sandals and I'm wearing Doc Martens and like, you know, I just being weird anyway and the black kid. And then I have this depression that I feel ashamed of and it doesn't feel like, I mean, in, in Christian communities, there was a lot of like, if you're not happy, you're not like, you don't love Jesus. Yeah. You're not praying. And isn't there someone glowing inside of you or Whatever. And so the shame of, you know, when I started taking meds and and things like that. And so it really is a novel about self-acceptance and owning oneself and and finding ways to discover your own history and your own kind of like lineage and your own story. Okay, so just um, that sounds great. And I can't wait for it to come out. Just to wrap up, like both of you have Morgan, you less recently, but Tommy, you recently have like moved from Brooklyn, where you both met and worked together to Los Angeles. And like, how are you? Is that like a permanent? I know you said, Morgan, that you don't like live here. Actually, you just have a you have I'm a, not, a place to sleep here. But I'm not moving. You're like, not moving. I mean, not... so t- like, how are you guys finding that like transition? And you're from, both like, from California Brooklyn? originally. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, from right. Southern that's California. Yeah. About that. Uh, I don't know how you're. I mean, here, here's the thing. I haven't figured it out yet. You know, mm. I, and when I go back to New York, I'm comforted because I know how that city works. Yeah. You know, that place reared me. I was there for 15 years. I know mm-hmm. how to walk. I know how loud to be. I know where to order food and a drink. I know, you know, it's just like Which I know. subway car? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> ab- absolutely. And here, I'm just like, is it? Is it? Is it? Do Do I dare to eat a peach? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that part is hard. Like not having the like go-to spots. Right. I think that's like a big thing for and me. I just started putting things together. Like I've just started being like, oh, there's that wine bar. And then there, it's right next to that place <laughs> that I made out with the dude in the bathroom. And like, <laughs> oh, and then the, there's that other, there's, there's the arcade down the street. So it's like, it's, kind of cohering in my head instead of a series of like broken vignettes it's becoming Mm. more of a of a real story but like I don't know I mean I gave myself a year because I was just working on one project with a producer here sure right and my roommate is one of my best friends and he's gonna leave and so I was like I guess if if I'm feeling it I'll stay if I'm not feeling it I'll leave but but I I have actually committed to at least doing one more year okay yeah Cool. All right. All right. <laughs> well, we'll see you back. Thank you. All right. Thank you guys so much. It Thank has been both. a pleasure to speak to you. Yes, it has. We have been speaking with Morgan Parker, author of Magical Negro, and Tommy Pico, author most recently of Junk and of the forthcoming collection Feed. Thank you both so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. 
If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.